for him. God, we thank you for um, the different gifts that you have given us uh, in the church. Uh, some are the eyes, some are the hands, legs, uh, the mouth. And Elder Vincent, obviously, I think, is uh, anointed with um, teaching uh, of the Word. And I pray today that anointing will come upon him in a very special way, uh, pressed down, um, overflowing, uh, as he teaches us from your Word, that, Lord, it will transform our lives. Come and minister to us, Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Paul. And uh, good morning. Let me just uh, settle. You know, a few a few weeks ago, um, I was having a uh, conversation with some of my colleagues in the office. And I don't know how many of you remember, um, you probably remember this if you're a soccer fan. If you're not, then you probably don't care. Um, but there was uh, Liverpool, which was a very big uh, club in England, uh, came to Singapore, and they played against uh, Singapore, the Singapore national team. The Singapore national team was called the Lions, or is called the Lions. And um, we were discussing that because uh, we were pretty disgusted that uh, actually quite a few Singaporeans um, supported Liverpool uh, against the Singapore national team. And we were lamenting that it was so sad. This is it's like, how can, how can you support a, a foreign club against your own country? So then my um, mainland Chinese colleague, who was uh, also nothing to do in the office and just joining in this discussion, said, relax, la, why are you so uptight? It's, uh, it's probably for fun. And then another colleague asked him, if China against Liverpool, who will you support? He said, of course China. La. Uh, Last week we talked about allegiance, right, uh, and devotion. Um, what we swear our allegiance to will determine our identity. And uh, that 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 thing about Liverpool and Singapore is just interesting about um, where. And I think I think as a nation, our government has also highlighted that they are also struggling with the issue of what it means to be a Singaporean. Why is it so important that even even the government is uh, concerned. I think, I think what drives our identity um, is, is, I want to suggest to you that, and then, and then we find out why. Why is it important that we get a proper view of ourselves, uh, we get a proper identity? What drives our identity? I want to suggest to you that what drives our identity is broadly our affiliations. That means what we relate to. And uh, in my life, I've observed that when I'm young, when I was young, um, our identity is more driven by our affiliations with people, meaning the affiliations with who. Meaning when you're very young, uh, probably you get a lot of uh, who you are from your parents. And then when you become a teenager, you, a lot of your identity is driven by uh, your friends. So that, that is your affiliation with people. Then as I grew older and started working and started um, uh, contributing to society, I noticed that my identity increasingly was driven more by uh, my affiliation to things. That means what I do, uh, what, is, what is said on my name card, right? Uh, and essentially, uh, work and possessions bega- became a bigger uh, feature of who I am and how I see myself than um, in that sense who I'm related to. I mean, it's, I, I, I don't think we are, I think it's a, it's a spectrum, and I don't think you are, when you're young, you're at one end of the spectrum, and on, on, when you're older, uh, you're on the other end. But I think um, what, what drives our identity is probably a combination of both these affiliations to people and also to the things uh, we do. I, obviously, I didn't do an experiment on this or a survey. This is not... This is not conclusive for sure, but I just want to share with you, this is largely from my observations and my life experience, that largely who we are is driven by who we are affiliated to and what we are affiliated to, our work, uh, the things we do. And 
I want to suggest to you, why, why is that important? Because I think much of that, much of the affiliations with people and with things, uh, most likely it gives us meaning in life. Right? If, if you think about it, it gives us purpose. These affiliations with people and these affiliations with things, uh, this combination of relationships and occupation devi- defines most, if not all, of who we are. You know, our lives intertwine with people, with things, with occupation, determine our sense of purpose. That's why it's important. Let me give you an example. If we wake up one Monday morning, um, I think, I hope, there is meaning to life for you when you wake up on Monday morning. And, and to me, uh, there is meaning to life largely because uh, I know I'll be achieving something today. or I'll, I'll be achieving something on that Monday. I, I, I know that I will be going, uh, God willing, I will be going to work and I will be doing something meaningful. And that, that in that sense, uh, drives my purpose in life. My, my identity, my affiliation to my work gives me that sense of purpose on a Monday. Then what happens on a, when you wake up on a Saturday? When you wake up on a Saturday, uh, again, I hope, there is meaning to life when you wake up. And that's probably because you know you'll be going for that, that dim sum lunch with your friends or with your family or you're going to, I don't know what, Pongo waterfront to walk around. And, and that, is, that is that relationship thing, right? The affiliation to relationship will give you meaning to life on that weekend. So that's, that's why it's important. Who we see um, or how we see ourselves, what we are defined by, uh, is important because it drives um, uh, what we think is meaning in life. And it's about the affiliations we have. And if you've been doing the four sessions thus far um, on roots and wings, you probably know the drill by now. Uh, what do we start with? We always start with day one. Anybody knows what we start with day one? You have been doing roots and wings, right? Okay. What is the human weakness, right? What is the human weakness, the pitfall? You know, as we mature, I believe most of us shift from youthful idealism to realism or what you call pragmatism, right? Youthful idealism is when, um, I mean, if... Uh, one extreme of it you, you can remember is uh, the Cultural Revolution in China. Um, actually, a, a big piece of that movement were these youths uh, who, who organized themselves into this Red Army who were so passionate for the communist cause that they were even willing to uh, deny family uh, and, and deny parents to, to go for that. That's youthful idealism. Uh, I had parents um, who were Chinese educated and they tell me they were involved in the Chinese high incident um, communists and, and they were, they were my, my mother was tear gassed and all that kind of thing and they felt so proud of it but if you ask them now uh, they are pragmatic people now they said that was the silliest period of their lives um, communism is, is, is just, uh, just wasn't, wasn't worth it and that, that's what I mean sometimes we, we have these youthful idealisms then as, as we get knocked around in life we become more and more pragmatic you probably have your own youthful idealism where where you believed in fairy tale endings and, 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 and all kinds of things, then along as you grow, you notice um, we, became, we become more and more realistic, uh, down-to-earth, pragmatic. And I think that could be one of the reasons why um, people support Liverpool rather than Singapore. Uh, Singaporeans are very known, well known to be pragmatic. And I think we, because we don't believe supporting the national team will be worth our while. Uh, we don't believe in fairy tale endings. We don't believe that when we're all at wherever they played that game, when we all grab behind the national team, we don't, we don't subscribe to the youthful idealism that somehow that support will translate into a win over Liverpool. We are pragmatic people. We know that the odds are stacked against uh, the national team and we say, better support the winning team. Okay, it doesn't help that we're also a very branded nation. So Liverpool is probably more branded than Singapore. You know, people spend tons of money to attend talks, networking sessions, to glean experiences, uh, wisdom from retired generals or even um, seasoned politicians, either in the business, political, family, education world. But I have good news for you. You know, the Bible, the, the Bible 
is profitable for teaching, for guidance, for life instruction. It's a book of wisdom and it's free. We don't have to pay money to learn from uh, wise people in the Bible. And today we're going to look at, we're going to look at two, um, two, two wise people and how they derived uh, their meaning to life. And we're going to learn from them. Okay, we're going to learn from them. And I just want to show you the first one. And this was from Ecclesiastes. And this was from a wise guy called Solomon. And I want to just read this to, to you. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So what did he do? I just want to go through very quickly that with you. I undertook great projects. I built houses. I made gardens and parks. I planted. I bought. I had other slaves. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone. I amassed silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So lesson number one, right? Lesson number one was if if we are chasing after, if our identity is driven purely, only by earthly ownership and achievements, much as they are blessings from God and they are good things, but what, what, what Solomon is trying to tell us is, hey guys, if your identity is only going to be driven, what is defining you is only going to be driven by what you own on earth and what you achieve on earth, regardless of scale, right? Because I, I think... Many in this room, I'm not looking down on you, but I think many in this room will not achieve the kind of scale that Solomon did in his lifetime. But even Solomon came to the conclusion, and he's kind of truncating the whole lesson for you so that hopefully you don't go through this lesson and be like the old man who say, I was trying to climb this, this building the whole, the, my, my whole life only to find that at the end of my life, uh, my ladder was leaning against the wrong building. Right? So, so Solomon is trying, trying to tell you, I truncate the lesson for you. I don't want you to end on the wrong building. And what I'm telling you is, earthly ownership achievements by themselves, if they define you, regardless of scale, is not worth it. Right? It's not worth it. That's what he's saying. And then I want to show you, that's from the Old Testament. From the New Testament, this is another wise uh, person, uh, Apostle Paul. And this was when he was, in that sense, um, talking about how he sees his identity. This is what he says. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes into what? He goes into his pedigree. He goes into his relation to, to, to the Jewish nation. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, then he goes into his works, right? First he talks about his pedigree, his relationships, and then he goes into what he did. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Okay, so th th this is his CV. And he's saying, hey, if anybody wants to talk about achievements and relationships and affiliations, I've got it, right? I had it. But strangely, he says in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. Meaning he said, rubbish. This to me, if it if if you, if you tell me that pedigree and these things are going to define me, Paul is teaching us today. Again, I truncate the lesson for you. I accelerate your learning. Please don't go through the same mistake as me. If you're going to place your identity on human relationships and pedigree and even zeal and passion, right, which we, we find a lot of people in their lives are defined by their passion and their zeal for something. But Paul is telling us if it's just these not that these things are bad, but he's saying if it's only these, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. These things should not be the only thing that defines you. So we learn from the Old Testament and the New Testament that earthly achievements, earthly possessions, earthly ownership, they should not be the sole definition of who you are. Um, your human relationships, your zeal and your passion for something should not be 
the sole thing that defines you. Okay, here I want to just want to pause, and because I three weeks ago when I when I showed this chart uh, after the sermon, uh, I think I think I got some comments. Okay, the positive comments is okay, uh, but I think uh, the, the 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 comments that came, I, I, obviously I'm I'm not I'm not uh, 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 affected. I didn't lose sleep over it or whatever. I'm just telling you, I want, I want to clarify, because when I showed this chart some, some, um, three weeks ago, some people said, hey, don't poo-poo wealth. La. Don't, don't, don't whip us when we are rich and when we have BMWs and we have Coach back and Prada back. Uh, why, why do you make it like something wrong with being rich? Uh, and, and you must be thinking, oh no, this guy is recalcitrant. He's coming again and he's going to whip the, whip the possessions thing. And I just want to tell you, um, my intent... <laughs> My intent is not to poo-poo uh, riches. I don't have an issue with that. In fact, I have a healthy bank account. Um, I don't have a problem with wealth or possessions. They are blessings from God. I even want to go so far as to tell you that God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be great. He wants you to have riches, but He just wants you to have the type that moths and rust do not destroy. So God is not against treasure. God is not against riches, but He just wants you to make sure that you focus on the right kind because He knows that whatever kind of riches you go after, it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time and we're all limited by our effort and our time. So He just said, make sure with the limited resources and the limited time you have, you go for the kind where the moths do not destroy and the rust cannot destroy. Don't go for the US dollars that depreciates. Don't go for a euro that's very unstable. Right? He just wants you to make sure that you spend your time um, accumulating the right kind of riches. So nothing wrong. No need to, to go and pawn your coach bag or, or your Prada bag or sell your diamond ring. I, I'm not, I wasn't advocating that in case you thought. And I believe these are blessings from God. But Jesus just wants to make sure that you do not be blinded in that pursuit for those things. If He blesses you that, that's fine. And what about great? He wants you to be great. In fact, when his disciples said that they wanted to be great, he even gave them a formula. You want to be great? Good. He tells you, serve the rest. If you want to be great, there's nothing wrong with that desire. And I give you the formula. Serve the rest. And he showed the way, right? Because Philippians says, he gave up everything, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Jesus was great because he served the rest. So there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with um, wealth or riches or power. If God blesses you with them and you're in a position of power, significance, riches, uh, praise God for that, right? But what I was saying is the, the intense pursuit of that sometimes deviates our attention from true riches and true greatness. And in case, the Bible itself, when you look at Paul, Paul says, I run to win, you know. He doesn't say, I run to... You, you get what I mean? He's not slicky, slicky, like um, very lethargic or something. Paul says, I run to win. Paul says, I'm looking forward to my reward. I'm looking forward to my crown. He's not some holy moly scavenger aiming for rubbish and crumbs in life. Paul is aiming high. So there's nothing wrong with aiming high. It's just important that you aim high for the right things. So I just want to be clear, nothing wrong with riches, significance, possessions. Abraham, Joseph, Daniel had all these, and the Bible says they were great men. It's only an issue when these define you. When these are the only things that define you. When it becomes your meaning in life, when it becomes the thing that you wake up on a Saturday or Monday, if these things are the only things that are your meaning in life, then it may become an issue. We, we, we must not be the provo proverbial uh, monkey. You know that? I brought my son's uh, monkey here today to just uh, help you. If you forget everything, you remember a monkey, okay? Uh, and this is my son's monkey. And you know that, 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 that story, right, where, where there's a peanut jar and the, and the monkey uh, slips in his hand into the, into the jar. And then, uh, you know, you slip it in, it's like this. And then when you grab the nuts, when the peanuts, uh, when you clench the fist, then you cannot take it out, right? So... I want to expand the story today because sometimes we are like this. And God has a bigger jar, a bigger, better jar of good things. 
and we are like this poor monkey, uh, just clenching and not letting go. And I, later on, I want to go into three examples of biblical characters who saw the bigger, better jar and were willing to let go of peanuts to get the bigger, better jar. You know, since we've been warned about what not to bank our identities on, what should not define us, uh, let's, let's learn. Let's learn from three biblical characters, I believe, got their identities secure, uh, who had defining moments in their lives that truly showed who they were at the core. Let's be honest. On a Sunday, when you look at me like this, uh, this is just part of me. When, when we're all blessed and when we're all okay and healthy and strong and rich and, and well-fed, uh, we're all nice people, right? Hopefully. Uh, most of us are, I think. Uh, when we are not under stress or under pressure, we are all easy to live with. But we all know the true person comes out when uh, we are stressed, when uh, life makes its demands on us, when we are stretched, when hard times come, that the core, the real person inside us comes out. And that's, when, that's, that's what defines us. And, I, and, and when we, these three biblical characters we want to study, um, I want to I show you what defined them because these were the times when they were stretched and when they were pressured. Okay? The first is Abraham. And Abraham teaches us a lesson in treating our treasured possession. This was an incident in Genesis 22 which I think many of you are familiar with. You know, Abraham had waited forever for the promise of a son. And when he finally got it and when the son was uh, a kid, uh, I, think, I think quite old because the son was able to talk with him and walk with him. God said to him one day clearly, uh, and, I, and I emphasize the word clearly because it's important to hear from God clearly before you do anything, okay? uh, especially something radical like this. Then God said to him, uh, take your son, and as if to, 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 to make it even more, 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 more painful, he said, your only son whom you love. I don't know why God had to... Had to, had to add that descriptor there, but it's in Scripture. So God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him on the mountain that I'm going to show you. Oh, that was tough, right? That was tough because this was a treasured possession. In fact, I think Abraham even probably said, this is his entitlement. This is, this is the promised one. This is my entitlement, Lord. How can you, how can you take it away? Right? The treasured possession. But strangely, um, not strangely, but uh, a measure of the man is seen in verse 3 of this Genesis 22. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. He did what the Lord told him to do. And then Hebrews 11 gives us a glimpse of what was going through Abraham's mind. It says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac. Why? Because in verse 19, and the last bit there, you see Abraham's reasoning and his logic flow. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. He reasoned that, that, that whatever God asked him to do, even if he meant sacrificing Isaac, God could even raise a dead Isaac back to him. You know what made this, what made this a defining moment for Abraham? You know, at stake, what was at stake? At stake was a treasured possession a treasured relationship. And for some, of, for some of us, we may even say it's an entitlement. Abraham deserved this for waiting all these years. And this was a promise from God. How can God do this? You see, most of us would have reasoned the other way, that if Isaac was so treasured and the promised one and even, in our, even our entitlement, we would defy God. We would tell God and reason that he was wrong to be asking for such a sacrifice. But let's, let's learn from Abraham's reasoning. Very interesting reasoning. Because that was what I just presented to you is how we would reason. We would reason that cannot be. This is a treasured possession. I cannot give it up. But what was Abraham's paradigm? What was his thought process? Hebrews tells us his reasoning was such. If God says so, if God decides so, then my job is to obey. Why? Because I trust in His absolute power and absolute weakness, willingness 
to do what is absolutely good. Let me just repeat that. Abraham trusted in God's absolute power and absolute willingness to do what is absolutely good. You know, Abraham is probably the, the, the man who lived by the maxim, the saying that we have heard before, I think from Benny Ho. In the end, it will be good. If it's not good, it's not the end. And this, this, this is what, what, what was special about Abraham's paradigm that we must learn. We must learn that, that trust in God's absolute power and absolute willingness to do what is absolutely good. This must define us. This must define us. In the end, it will be good. If it's not good, it's not the end. So that's one character. A person who his defining moment was when he displayed this trust, this trust in God's absolute power, willingness, and ability to do what is absolutely good. Okay, so that's Abraham. We learned that from Abraham. How to deal with a treasured possession uh, in a time of pressure. Second one we want to learn is uh, Esther. You know Esther, I just took out some verses from, from, from chapter 2 and I just want to tell you, Esther had favor after favor after favor. You know when she was taken to the king's palace, the one who was entrusted to take care of all the girls, Esther found favor with, with him. And then Esther, it says, won the favor of everyone who saw her. And then it says, when the king saw Esther, wow, he was so attracted to her and he poured out his favor on her. Favor after favor after favor. Okay, when does the hiccup come? The hiccup comes when one day, um, the king says, the king passes a decree to annihilate the whole Jewish race. Okay, so that, that's the hiccup. It wasn't a hiccup for the queen, Esther, because she was safe in the palace. But uh, it was a hiccup because those were her people that were going to be annihilated, right? And, and the difficult bit when she was enjoying all this favor, all this significance, and all this power was when her, when her quite, quite pushy cousin uh, sent a messenger and said, Hey, I think you better go to the king and plead on behalf of the people. And Esther immediately sent the messenger back to the cousin and said, Dear cousin, you want me to die? Ah? Right? In, in, in those words, not exactly in those words, in more eloquent words, but basically saying, you, you know the rules. I can't just go to the king. If the king doesn't ask for me, uh, he'll chop off my head unless he gives me a special pardon. So I, I can't do this. And this is Mordecai's, uh, uh, Mordecai's um, um, reply to her that when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is Esther. This is your defining moment. Just as, it, just as it was for Abraham, Esther, this is your defining moment. Because what was at stake? What was at stake was a position of favor and power and blessings. She was favored, favored, favored. Blessed beyond her wildest imagination. And then this was at stake now because Mordecai tells her, hey, maybe uh, this is the reason for the favor. This is the reason for the blessing. You see, again, most of us would have again reasoned the other way. That it took so much to get to my position of favor and blessing, it would be silly to jeopardize it all. But what was Esther's reasoning? Her thought process? I believe her reasoning was such. Much of the blessings come from God to her as God loved her. So that's true. I don't think she had a problem with God loving her and blessing her. And I think we need to be comfortable with that as well. That God loves us and wants to bless us. But she also realized that her position, this amazing favor and blessing that God has bestowed on her life, she had this awareness that it cannot be just for herself. It cannot be just for self-gratification. Abraham trusted in the maxim, 
that in the end, it will be good. If it's not good, it's not the end. What did Esther abide by? Esther believes this. I am blessed for a reason. I am blessed for a reason. She had an awareness that my position, my resources, the favor bestowed on me is for a reason. And that's why I believe an Abraham and an Esther were able to go beyond self. They were able to go beyond achievements and ownership and relationships in the earthly sense and go beyond, jeopardize all this and go beyond self. So that's Abraham, that's Esther. The last one who sums it all up for me, I think, is uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is amazing because he was enjoying a fruitful ministry. Many people were coming to him and then one day his disciples come to him and tell him, Rabbi, the man who was with you, Jesus, on the other side of the Jordan, the one you talked about, the one whose who's, who's pop- who's popularity you advocated, you know what's happening? He's baptizing and everybody is going to him. So in other words, hey, John, you're losing, you're losing it. In fact, what makes it worse is the guy you were, you were promoting and propagating is kind of snatching away your customers. John, you're losing it. Your ministry, your fruitful ministry, John, appears to be losing ground. And I love John's reply. John's reply is amazing. He tells, he says, Hey, let me tell you this. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. What I've received is all from heaven. And I don't have an identity crisis. I already told you I am not the Messiah. I am sent ahead of Him. I know who I am and I know who I'm not. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. And John harbors no illusions of grandeur that he is the bridegroom. He is not. He says, I am not the bridegroom. I am not the Messiah. I am not the center of the world. I am the friend who attends to the bridegroom. I wait and listen to the bridegroom. I am in fact full of joy when the bridegroom is exalted. That joy is mine and it is now complete. And then these famous words, he must become greater, I must become less. Again, what made this a defining moment for John? What was at stake was a successful venture, right? A successful enterprise, a fruitful ministry. That was what was at stake. You see, most of us, again, would have reasoned the other way. That since it took so much time to get my ministry and my venture and my business to a season of fruitfulness, surely I am entitled to a bit more time in the sun. But what was John's reasoning, his thought process? And I think he summed up Abraham and Esther very well. I believe his reasoning was such. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. The Isaacs the favor in my life, the position in my life, the blessings in my life, the successes in my life, they are all great and I recognize where they come from, not from my hands, they are from heaven. I am aware that a person can receive only what is given them from God. The second thing that defines John and his identity is he is clear who he is and who he is not. I am not the Messiah but I am sent ahead of him, an awareness of who he is and who he is not. The bride belongs to the bridegroom, an awareness of what belongs to him and what does not belong to him. I am not the bridegroom. The bride is not mine. I am clear what belongs to me and what does not belong to me. The fourth one, the, the fr- I am the friend who attends to the bridegroom. He is aware of his role, blessed for a reason. He must become greater, I must become less. An awareness of the end game. An awareness of the end game. You know, there's a common thread in these three people. One is, they had no illusions of grandeur about themselves. They held their possessions with an open hand. And they put themselves totally at risk if God does not deliver. They put themselves totally at risk 
if God does not deliver. In fact, Esther said it very well. If I perish, I perish. Means I, I, I'm totally at risk. If God, does not, if God does not deliver, I'm finished. No illusions of grandeur about themselves. Held their possessions with an open hand. Put themselves totally at risk if God does not deliver. That is why they were able to go beyond themselves. I want you to contrast this with Numbers uh, 21. Don't be like this. I put it there. Numbers 21 is an incident where the people were again in the desert and this was after a massive victory over some enemies. They prayed to God and said, let me overcome my enemies and He helped them overcome their enemies. And what happened? When they were travelling from one place to another, they grew impatient on the way, they spoke against God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, no water. You know what's disturbing about this verse? This verse is disturbing because it repeats itself many times. These people always have the same complaint. They always either complain about bread or they always complain about, they always complain about food or water or we're going to die. They always complain about leaving Egypt. And it, it's, it's, it's this process. How do, how do you contrast this with Abraham, or Esther, and a John the Baptist? These people's view of God was, God, you have to deliver every time on my terms and at my timing. And First Corinthians 10, as you say, God was so angry with them. Why? Because they were testing Him. You see, they never trusted Him. God had to continually prove Himself to them. The manner yesterday, that's passe. God, today, you've got to prove yourself to me. And after today is over, tomorrow, they will grumble about something else because they say, God, you've got to prove yourself again. I cannot trust you unless you always show me here and now the agenda that I want. And that's called testing. Don't be like this. Okay? Don't be like this. Because these people were defined another way. I just want to get uh, Simon to play you a song now because I've been speaking for a while. And um, this, this song was written by a lady called Laura Story. And it was an awesome, it's an awesome song because this is a young lady who just got married. And um, when she got married, uh, she went through marital counseling with uh, her hubby. And they, and they had this, um, they were taught how to manage their finances. And they, taught, they were taught how to manage conflicts and all that, you know, the usual premarital counseling thing. And um, just after they were married, uh, the husband was discovered to have a huge tumor in the brain. And uh, it broke my heart when I read it that she said, Marriage counseling didn't teach me how to handle. Uh, um, didn't teach me how to handle that. Uh, and she wrote this song. So I just want you to listen to this song. And uh, I think there are some lyrics from YouTube. Doubt your goodness 
doubt your love As if every promise from your word is not enough And all the while you hear each desperate plea And long that we'd have faith to believe Cause what if your blessings come into our lives um, how we need to be like an Abraham and believe that <clears throat> God is absolutely powerful absolutely good and absolutely willing to help us through that season of darkness or misunderstanding of his ways I just want to quickly end off with First Peter 2 Remember, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want, I want you to remember the monkey with his clenched fist still. Yours is not an identity of an insecure, peanut-grabbing monkey. Our destiny is not to be gripped and stuck in a peanut jar. There is a bigger, better jar of better things next to the small peanut jar. Let go and let God. The blessings that God has given to you, enjoy them. God is not after your possessions. He's not asking you to give up the favor that you enjoy or your position. In all likelihood, it is He who gave these to you. He is more concerned that you don't settle for something less. He is more concerned that you don't identify yourself with these things or be identified solely by these things. You know, um, I'm a very competitive person. I'm trying to change. But um, I always when I play games, I love to win. I don't know whether you can identify with me. Um, I, I, hate, I hate to lose. And uh, every time we play these uh, church camp games and all that, uh, when we play all these tele matches and all that, uh, oh, I will, will strive to win. And and the anticlimax is always when when you play the first time, and you and you win, and your team wins, and then and then the game master says, "Okay, that was the demo. Uh, let's start the real thing." Uh, and I think the song says it well. 
Rick Warren says it well. This life is a dress rehearsal. This is not our home. This is the demo. The real thing is eternity with Jesus. So let's not miss. Let's not miss the real thing. Don't settle for the demo. Don't be a monkey. I'll just invite the musicians up and we'll just close. Why don't we rise? As we sing this closing song, I, wanna, I want to issue an altar call to you that if these are struggles that you can identify with Abraham, Esther, John, I want you to come forward to the altar because I believe God wants to touch you. You know, don't, don't be like the, the, the elder brother in the, in the story of the prodigal son. So sad, right? He said, Look, Father, all these years I've been slaying for you, slaving for you, and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property, you kill the fattened cow for him. And what was the father's reply? The father's reply was, what are you talking about? You are always with me and everything I have is yours. Our perception of God is so important. And if we have that perception of God as a, a miserly, stingy, sadistic father who always wants to take away our favour, who always wants to take away our possession, we're, we're, we're worried of letting him go, letting it go to him. I want you to come forward and just be ministered by who he really is. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. So as we sing this closing song, if you want to respond, come forward. I want to pray for you. Into your hands. I commit again all I
blessings for you Lord I pray that Lord will be not will, will not be defined Lord by the things that you have blessed us with but will be defined Lord by who you are Lord I pray for trust and faith to arise in each and every one of us Lord help us to believe that Lord you are absolutely good absolutely powerful and most importantly absolutely willing Lord to to give us a better future a greater good Lord. I want to pray that Lord for those of us who have been blessed with many good things I pray for a keen awareness that Lord it can't be just for ourselves that Lord we are blessed for a reason we are blessed to bless others Lord I pray that Lord that will arise in those of us who have been blessed in a great measure I want to pray also for those of us who are struggling Lord who are, who are at the crossroads of our lives and, and Lord where we are reasoning with you and saying no, no, no I want to pray that, Lord, you'll help us to remember the story of that monkey, Lord. Help us to trust you, to let go and believe that, Lord, there is a bigger, a better jar that you're, you're preparing for us. So, Lord, just deposit this in our minds, deposit this in our hearts. Let our faith arise. Let us walk out, Lord, knowing who we truly are in Jesus. And I pray that we'll be able to say like John the Baptist, that Lord our joy is complete thank you Lord in Jesus name Amen thank you the service is over if you wish